be in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. It's interesting that, you know, as you go through a book of the Bible, uh, you just so happen to run across texts that encourage you and lift you up uh, and prepare you for things that are going to happen. Uh, a few weeks ago, we went through uh, Jesus' miracles and him healing uh, and taking away every disease and talked about that and the fact that sometimes he doesn't uh, and sometimes he answers our prayers, sometimes he doesn't. It's, you know, it's, sometimes it's uh, his will, sometimes it's not. Uh, and that really helped prepare us for the suffering that was to come. But now that we're through this, uh, you know, I see a theme kind of in the last sermon in chapter 11 and now in chapter 12 of rest. Uh, rest is something that God uh, talks about in the Old Testament as well. If you remember, we went through the book of Judges uh, and God gave the people rest. Uh, he brought them into the promised land under Joshua. He gave the people rest. Uh, and over and over again, he gives the people rest. So uh, as we look at uh, Matthew in chapter 11 at the very end, we notice Jesus saying this, Come to me, verse 28, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we went through all of this with Zeke and everything, um, we were really at peace. I mean, really, it wasn't uh, the end of our world. Uh, and I think Milton Woodruff wrote us a card, and he put in there the statement from David, uh, which, you know, you probably, everybody here has probably received cards from Milton. He loves writing cards. He does such a good job. But uh, he brings up David and how David said, uh, why should I grieve now? I, He's not coming back to me, but I'm going to him. Uh, and that thought gives us rest, right? That, those, the understanding we have of scriptures is supposed to give us that kind of rest for our souls. The understanding that Jesus is uh, taking care of us, that he's providing for us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is supposed to give us encouragement and give our souls rest, not anxiety or concern about the things of this world as they all fall apart. It's interesting as we go into chapter 12 that uh, Jesus, Matthew is going to bring up a discussion and things that start happening on a Sabbath day because the Sabbath is the day of rest uh, for God's people. So coming right off of this statement from Jesus, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest, is a discussion about the rest of Israel, uh, which is the Sabbath day. And the way that he's going to talk about rest it, and, and this uh, you know, rest that God has provided for his people is going to remind us of some things that we've seen earlier in the book of Matthew. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 5, uh, Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. And then he went through teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees about you shall not murder. He said, but I say to you, don't be angry with your neighbor. You shall not uh, commit adultery. But I say to you, don't lust after a woman, right? Jesus is talking about how to fulfill the law. Uh, he's not abolishing the law. He's talking about actually fulfilling it. And he's contradicting 
the teachings of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day who, were, who, were, uh, who had all these traditions and all these rules and all these checklist laws that they were trying to keep in order to be righteous enough uh, to be pleasing to God in order to receive all the blessings. He contradicts those things uh, by making the statement that God wants your heart. It's not about the external. It's about your heart. God wants you to love him more than you love this world. Uh, He wants you to reject the sins and the enticements and the passions of our flesh and pursue him. Uh, And then as we continued on in the book, we noticed uh, that in chapter 9, the Pharisees were upset at him because he's hanging out with these tax collectors and sinners. And then John's disciples come and say, why aren't you fasting like the Pharisees and tax collectors? And he makes it very clear. He says, a new, uh, an old garment that has a tear can't be repaired by adding a new garment uh, because then a worse tear will happen. And what he was saying is, all these teachings of the Pharisees and all these teachings of the Sadducees and all these traditions of men, uh, they're not working to, uh, to accomplish and fulfill the will of God. They have to be uh, ignored, essentially. In order to actually fulfill the will of God, you don't follow the checklist of your forefathers You follow the word of God. And this is what he's trying to get across to them and help them understand throughout all of this. Uh, And he makes this strong statement uh, in that section back in chapter 9. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Because God, they have made all these rules to sacrifice to God great things. And just like Saul, I've got all these animals now that I can sacrifice to you. And God is saying, that's not really what I wanted. You know, that doesn't please me. Uh, For you to do all these checklists of things does not please me. I want your heart. I want you to love me as you should. And I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, as we continue in chapter 12, we're going to, those, those thoughts need to be in our minds because that's going to help us really understand how this is all progressed throughout the book of Matthew as we've been studying it uh, and how it develops in this chapter as he talks about the command to keep the Sabbath. Okay, let's start reading the first two verses. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Let's pause there. So Jesus and his disciples walking through a grain field. The disciples start plucking the heads of grain, and and they're probably grinding it in their hands to get all the chaff off and get down to the grain, and then they're eating the grain because they're hungry on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees call them out as being lawbreakers. You're doing work on the Sabbath day. In Exodus chapter 20, uh, they were commanded not to do work. On the Sabbath day, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant, your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is with you in your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This was a day of no work. God had commanded on the seventh day for all of Israel to rest. And it appears as you go through the Old Testament that God takes this very seriously. He's not okay with people just up and deciding, I feel like working, so I'm going to work. 
He wanted to his people to rest, to stop their work, and to uh, spend some time worshiping him, essentially is where it's going to come down to. We notice in Numbers 15 that uh, there's a man who decides to go out and picks up sticks on the Sabbath day. Oh, that's no big deal, right? That's not a lot of work. Uh, it's, that's a small thing. He just wants to build a fire, maybe keep himself warm. Uh, men see that, and they take him to Moses, and they say, what are we supposed to do with this guy? And, and God goes to, uh, Moses goes to God, and God says, you need to stone him. You need to put him to death because he has uh, disobeyed the command on the Sabbath. So we see God takes this Sabbath day very seriously. This is not a flippant thing. And so the Pharisees are accusing Jesus' disciples of breaking the Sabbath day. Uh-oh, what's, what's going to happen now? Uh, you know, what, was what they were doing really work? And have they, have they really disobeyed the will of God uh, by, by plucking heads of grain and grinding them up and eating them? Well, as we look elsewhere in the Old Testament, we learn a little bit about the Sabbath day and God's will for the Sabbath day. And interestingly enough... Uh, we learn it from a text in Isaiah. Matthew has been loving Isaiah. He's been using Isaiah and talking about how Jesus fulfills Isaiah over and over again. Uh, but in Isaiah 58, uh, a chapter that's mostly about how Israel is fasting uh, in a way that God is not pleased with. And he says, I'd much rather you be obedient and be doing my will than be fasting. But at the end of that chapter, you know, remember they were fasting and thinking, why aren't your disciples fasting? At the end of that chapter, uh, he talks about how they must instead be obedient to God instead of fasting. And then he says this in verse 13, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The statement here is, if you will actually honor my holy day, if you'll actually honor my Sabbath, then you will be taking delight in me and you will be honoring me as you worship me on this Sabbath day. Instead of doing what you want to do, instead of doing your own pleasures and, and doing things your own way, if you choose to do what I command you to do and, and, and take delight in the rest that I provided you, I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. And he says... I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. That's an interesting statement, considering what's going on here. Uh, his disciples are plucking heads of grain in the promised land uh, that has been provided by the Lord's reign, and, and they're eating the heritage of Jacob uh, on the Sabbath day. So it's very interesting that he, really the disciples are fulfilling Isaiah 58. But are they doing work? Well, if you go back to Numbers 15 again, and you look at the section that talks about the man picking up sticks, what you notice is, in the context, chapter 15 describes unintentional sins of the people and how those are to be accommodated and handled, and it describes defiant, high-handed sins of rebellion. 
And then the very next statement after describing high-handed sins of rebellion is there was a man picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. So the statement is not that he broke a little rule here and now God's going to get him, but it's that he was defiant and rebellious against the Lord. And God's not going to tolerate defiant rebellion. His heart was rebellious and stubborn against the Lord's command. So what had the disciples done? Had they rejected the Lord? Had they rebelled against him and said, Aha, I don't care if you don't want me to grab the grain and eat it on the Sabbath day. I'm going to do it anyway. No. <laughs> they were hungry and they plucked grain, grinded it, and ate it. This is actually something that's permitted under the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 23, uh, Moses and God makes it very clear that God wants Israel to provide for the poor in the land by leaving the edges of their fields. We learned about this in Ruth, in our overview of Ruth. That God wants to leave a portion of their crops for the poor to go and to glean. And they're commanded not to reap what's there and stuff it in their bags. <laughs> to take a, a load to, to carry home with them. So they're actually prohibited from gathering on the sixth day, Friday, and taking it to have it for the Sabbath day. So if you're poor in the land, you're just going to starve on the Sabbath day unless you understand that God is not this rule-keeping God who wants to oppress the poor. And this is really ultimately what the disciples understand. This is ultimately what Jesus understands as he allows this to go on. But they have broken the Pharisees' laws. They haven't broken God's laws in doing this, but they have broken the Pharisees' laws. And the Pharisees, uh, they don't really have a focus on is, what's their heart like. Are they defiant? Are they rebellious against the Lord? Or are they really loving the Lord and trying to do His will? Are they serving Him with their life? Instead, they've, they've decided to create a detailed checklist of all the ways that God could get us. And make sure that we keep all the laws of God so that he can't get us. He can't point out anything that we've done wrong. And then they, they look at everybody else and they say, oh, you broke that one. And then they cross them off and that gives them the ability to condemn people. And that's essentially what they were looking for as they were seeing the disciples picking heads of grain. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 3. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Huh. So Jesus responds by saying, don't you know that David ate the bread of the presence? Now, the bread of the presence is the bread in the tabernacle that the priests were required to constantly keep in the tabernacle. This is called the showbread. There were 12 uh, loaves of this showbread that was continually refreshed. Every week, they would put new loaves in the tabernacle that would stay there for seven days, and they'd take the old, and they would share it among the priests, and that would be part of their food. And it was a holy thing because it was in the holy place. Well, David ate that bread. Hmm. What does this have to do with anything? <laughs> Why is Jesus bringing up David eating bread in the holy place? Well, according to the Pharisees' checklist system, you know, if they want to be true to their checklist system, they need to be judging David harshly here. 
According to their system, David has done something that is not lawful. And he ought to be condemned because it is not lawful for anyone of Israel who is not a priest to eat of the bread, the presence, the showbread. And so Jesus is making a very clear point that David should be condemned in that text. But the Jews love David. The Jews lift up David. This is the city of David, Jerusalem, uh, that they love so much. And, and David is the one who uh, God takes pleasure in because he's a man after God's own heart. They're looking for a new David to come, to, to reign over Israel and to conquer all of their enemies. David is this major person, person in all of the Old Testament that in the New Testament they were looking forward to. So why did God allow him to eat that bread without condemning him? That's the question that he wants these Pharisees to ponder. <laughs> For David, it wasn't this checklist system, was it? It, doesn't, it didn't, didn't really work that way for David. Not that he was thinking about every single law and trying to make sure that in every single way he had every, check, every box check marked and everything was good in his life so that God approved of him. That's not really how it worked. As he goes to the tabernacle uh, with Saul pursuing him and he asks the priest, do you have any bread? He says, we only have the show bread. And he says, uh, give me that. And the priest says, if you've, been, if you've been clean, you can have it, you and the men who are with you. And David says, we have. And David's not condemned at all for taking the bread of the presence. Then he brings up another instance. He says, have you not read in the law how the priests are able to profane the Sabbath every week? Man, we should put them all to death. Look at them offering sacrifices on the Sabbath day and teaching and, and, and preaching in the synagogues, and, and all this work that they're doing, circumcising on the eighth day if it falls on the Sabbath. Man, they're all just breaking your system. And Jesus is making this point very clear to them, that their system doesn't work. When you look at the law of God, it cannot be read as a checklist system. It just doesn't work. If we do that, we find that we're condemning people God does not condemn. As we studied this about David, we struggled with that, right? I mean, we studied it a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago, and we saw David ate that bread. He wasn't supposed to. Why did he do that? Well, he did, and he wasn't condemned for it. Because here he is on the run, poor, in need of food, and the priest does not condemn him and says that it's okay. That's interesting. You continue reading... And look at what Jesus says. These are some really good statements that take some time to understand or think about. He says in verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So we wonder, you know, why did Jesus bring up these examples? Well, here we have David, who is God's anointed, uh, the man after God's own heart, whom he has chosen, who, who God loves, the man who slew Goliath and showed great faith and great loyalty to Saul. Then we have the tabernacle, 
which is God's dwelling place. All these things are involved in, in this story of David. And then we have the priests that work, and, and it requires them to break the Sabbath. All these examples, how do they fit in with Jesus and his disciples? Jesus says, something greater than the temple is here. Wait. The temple was the greatest thing. <laughs> the temple was the greatest blessing in Israel. Uh, they looked at that temple and that told them, God is with us. We are God's people. God delivered us from our slavery in Egypt. He delivered us from our captivity in Babylon. This temple represents the fact that God is dwelling with Israel. You remember back in Moses' time, he, they built the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord descended on the tabernacle and it filled with smoke, showing God is with Israel. This is God's people. He is their God. Whenever Solomon built the temple, the glory of the Lord descended and smoke descended and, and all the people recognized God's name is in this place. This is God's people. This is his temple. Well, What's the picture here? Jesus is greater than the temple. We go back earlier in Matthew and we remember how his birth, uh, Matthew brought up, was a fulfillment of Isaiah 7. God with us. He shall be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Jesus is the temple of God. Jesus is a physical body that contains God living with his people. Something greater than the temple is here. Something more holy uh, than the temple is here. And he's really giving the, the, the understanding that he's greater than David. He's greater than the priests. He's greater than the whole system that, that the, the Israelites were serving under, that they were following after. Jesus is way greater. So what the, the Pharisees should have been doing instead of looking at the disciples and condemning them is they should have been seeing these disciples more so as priests uh, and, and Jesus as one who has authority and understanding that he's on a greater mission than David was. He's on the greatest mission of all. And that's, that's really what they're missing. And, and he really brings that out with the last statement about himself. The Son of Man, remember that phrase, the Son of Man means either he's just human or it could refer to Daniel's prophecy about um, the Messiah being given all the kingdoms of the earth. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the day of rest. Jesus is the one who is bringing the ultimate rest that God always intended. But these Pharisees are just bringing oppression and work and labor and heavy laden on all those around them. They're throwing loads on people's backs with their checklist system that they themselves are unwilling to carry. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who has come to set men free. And provide them the rest that God always intended to give them. Another phrase is in this. That he says, 
verse 7, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What they're doing is the same thing that they did earlier. They see Jesus doing something that's perfectly fine, but they're unmerciful. Uh, They see his disciples doing something that's perfectly fine, they're unmerciful. And so Jesus says again, uh, you you didn't figure out what it means. I told you, you need to figure out what Hosea 6, 6 means. Remember, we talked about that. I asked you, have you understood what this means? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Do we know now what it means? (laughs) God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Do we see in this text that they are so focused on the sacrifices? Their checklist system is sacrifice-focused. But God wants them to be merciful. The next section gives us a little story, verse 9 through 14. He went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. So Jesus on that same day goes into a synagogue. This is what they would do on the seventh day as part of their uh, worship to God, to delight in God. On the seventh day, they would come together to worship, much like we do. And as he goes in there, they bring him a man with a withered hand, probably has paralysis and the hand doesn't work anymore and, and it's just lost all muscle tone or something like that. And, and so they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus' response is, uh, do you pull a sheep out of a well when it falls down? And if you're willing to save your sheep and help him, uh, help the sheep on a Sabbath day immediately, why not a man? He points to their hypocrisy. But instead of seeing his mercy as he heals the man, they see him as being rebellious. After this, in verse 15, Jesus goes on from there, and many were following him, and he healed all of them. They conspire against him to destroy him, and all he does is go about healing more and more and more people. This is what the picture is. Mercy, sacrifice. Jesus shows the mercy of God the love of God, and shows how uh, he desires man to be loving and merciful and help other people. It's better to do that than it is to not when the opportunity is provided, even though it's on the Sabbath day, even though it may seem like this could possibly be something that is not okay uh, in, in disobeying God by doing something on the Sabbath. Jesus makes it very clear God desires mercy more than he desires the sacrifice. Then Matthew tells us, verse 17, This was was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, 
my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry loud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now Jesus, uh, now Matthew turns us to Isaiah 42 to pay attention to a text that describes the servant Messiah. As you go into the book of Isaiah and you start studying and learning about it, what you learn is uh, that there's an entire section devoted to God describing his Messiah as his servant who will come to the earth to do all the things that he wills, all the things that he wants. And it starts there in chapter 42 with this description of the Messiah. Notice the description that he is uh, gentle, that he is tender. He's not quarreling or, or crying aloud or fighting. He's not pompous. He's not proud. He's not a aggressive. He's not harsh. He's not judgmental. You've got a bruised reed. Uh, you imagine uh, um, a stalk of wheat or something like that that's, that's been bent over and now it's, it's bruised and if you just touch it, it'll just, it'll fold. He doesn't break it. You've got a wick that's just barely burning and if you pass by it too quickly, it'll go out. He doesn't put it out. He's this gentle, compassionate, merciful uh, person that, that has, according to verse 18, God's spirit upon him. The way that God is, Jesus is. Jesus shows the will of God in that he is doing what God has sent him to do by being gentle, merciful, and compassionate. This is completely opposed to the Pharisees who have been harsh and judgmental, and, and they see him eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they say, ah, oh, he's a sinner like them. And they just write off those who, who might be weaker or, or struggling. Another phrase is here twice. Uh, in verse 18, it says, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And then verse 21, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Gentiles has been a theme throughout Matthew as well. You remember at the beginning in the genealogy, there were Gentiles. You remember men from the east came and recognized that Jesus was the Messiah after he was born, uh, before the Jews did. You remember also that a centurion came with faith that God could heal his servant, though not even going with him. And Jesus said, I've not found such faith in all of Israel. The Gentiles are given this prominence because they're hoping in the Messiah because there have been promises made to the Gentiles and the Jews rejected all the Gentiles. But Jesus is a Messiah who is gentle and tender and willing to help and accept even those who are the furthest away. He's not coming to condemn. He's not coming to destroy. He's not coming uh, because he takes pleasure in bringing about his wrath. He's coming to heal. He's coming to bind up those who are wounded and to help those who have gone astray, all the lost sheep of Israel, to find their way back to God. Another text kind of interested me in Isaiah 42, verse 18. You remember all the texts that talk about how seeing they will not see, and hearing they will not hear. And Jesus says over and over again, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 18 says, Hear you deaf, and look you blind, 
that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. This is a confusing text. I I read through that, and I was kind of like, wait, what is that saying? He's saying the servant is blind, the servant is deaf. (laughs) But it's not because his eyes are, are unable to see or because his ears are closed. It's because he chooses to be patient with those who are deserving of judgment. He chooses not to see the evil in people. Instead, he sees the potential and the hope that they would be transformed and become what they ought to be. Jesus is not uh, uh, coming to condemn people. He's coming to show mercy and grace. And that's the picture we get in this whole section. So if we're going to apply this to ourselves, we see the Pharisees are cold, they're mean, uh, they're, they're harsh, they're judgmental. And, and we see that uh, focusing in on traditions and the teachings of men can cause us to overlook mercy and focus on sacrifice. This is a very real fear that should be inside of us. Traditions are good. Traditions are good. Uh, you know, I, I like traditions. Uh, I've once heard this statement. Traditions are the, the living faith of those who have passed away. I think that fits very well. We've got people we know who have great faith, who set a great example, and their faith is there. It's this living faith of those who passed away. But then it, he says, traditionalism is the dead faith of those who are alive. And that hurts. Traditionalism is the dead faith of those who are alive. Essentially, we're too lazy to have a faith of our own. So instead, we rely on the checklist system of our forefathers. Instead of having the right heart and the right desires inside of us to do the will of God, we rely on the traditions of those before us to just go through the motions and hope that somehow that pleases God. And this results in, like the Pharisees, proud, stubborn, harsh, judgmental hearts. And we need to understand that that's not what God wants at all. Yes, there are laws throughout Scripture, and I want to be very clear about this. There are tons of commands that Jesus does not just say, oh, don't worry about keeping any commands. But Jesus points out there's a hierarchy of values here. That God is a God of mercy. And being a God of mercy, he expects his people to be merciful. And not to be harsh and judgmental and condemning of those who appear to be maybe breaking the laws because they've broken the traditions that we've been handed down. We need to be very careful about being harsh toward people who disagree with us. Loving God does not require us to hate our neighbor in order to keep his commands. Loving God forbids us to hate our neighbor as we keep his commands. So we need all of these things together. We need love and we need obedience. 
And we're not going to give up love in order to be obedient. And we're not going to give up obedience in order to be loving and merciful toward others. We have to find a way to make these things mesh. Ultimately, the characteristics of Jesus have to be in us. We have to show the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. As we read in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the things that should permeate us as we, as we live around other people who we disagree with, that we love them, that we're caring, that we're patient toward them, not that we're angry and bitter toward them. Ephesians 4 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. We look at this and we think, well, that's going to be really hard to be that gentle, to be that merciful and that compassionate. I mean, we want to be more like the Pharisees when people do stuff that's wrong and we want to get justice. But Jesus points us back to the fact that God has forgiven us, that God is merciful toward us. And as Jesus is merciful and kind and and he has ears that can hear, but he chooses to believe the best in people and not to accuse people or assume the worst in people, so we also must have that same attitude toward others because ultimately we're forgiven. We're not so righteous that he forgave us. He forgave us even though we're not righteous so that we could become righteous like him. And that righteousness includes forgiveness. If you're here this morning and you have not experienced the rest that God offers, rest from works to be righteous. Rest from all the labor and and toil that goes into making up for all the sins that we've committed in the past. If you just carried that weight on your shoulders, thinking God's surely going to condemn me, in the back of your mind, but, but I'm doing all these things so that he won't. I want you to just understand. Jesus is the Lord of Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of rest. He came to take that load off of us to show us mercy and, and forgiveness that would then result in a transformed heart that loves other people and shows them the glory of God. If you're here and you need to obey the gospel and you need to let off all that sin and put on Christ's blood and find forgiveness and be a child of his. And you know what you must do and we can help you. Please come as we stand and sing.